We are continuing our series through the book of Exodus, and I'd like to do kind of a topical thing uh, this morning as we look at Moses himself, beginning in chapter 5. One of the famous aspects of the Exodus is the grumbling of the people. In fact, I, I asked a group of junior hires once, you know, what's the first thing you think of when you think about the Exodus? What's the first thing you think of when, when the uh, uh, Israelites are wandering around through the desert? And of course, the main thing that the kids thought about was the fact that they grumbled and they complained all the time. So it's a famous aspect, and we know that. This morning, I'd like to look at all of that complaining or grumbling from the perspective of Moses. I'd like to look at the suffering of Moses caused by the complaining of the people caused by the rejection of his own people. And the reason that I want to do that is because I think that the suffering of Moses actually shows us uh, or foreshadows the suffering of Jesus Christ. So this connects us with gospel. Our series here is the gospel according to Exodus. We, we see shadows, we see pictures, we see appetizers for the big meal of the gospel later on in Jewish history. So first, let's look at Moses, and we're going to fast forward a little bit and, uh, and look at a bunch of the different ways that Moses suffered as a result of leading these people. Uh, for example, right, I mean, right from the very beginning, we've already seen this one here in chapter 5, verse 21. This is after Moses goes and he tells Pharaoh, let my people go, and Pharaoh says no, and he keeps the same quota but removes the straw, so their workload is much heavier And a bunch of other Jewish leaders go uh, without Moses and Aaron to plead with Pharaoh to change his mind, and Pharaoh refuses. And in chapter 5, verse 21, uh, these Jewish leaders say to Moses and Aaron, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And later on, after the Exodus, like after the 10th plague, after Passover, they're out into uh, the wilderness and they're all excited and everything. And all of a sudden they look behind them and they realize that Pharaoh is pursuing them with his army. And in chapter, four, verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 11, they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Leave it to Jewish people to even have a sense of humor when they are complaining. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now we see fa- uh, frequent complaints about food and, and, and water. As they're out in the wilderness, and there were lots of them, at least hundreds of thousands of them, and they're all out there in the wilderness. And so they got hungry a lot. They got hungry quick. They got thirsty. And it's interesting because God, a couple of times, led them to places where there wasn't any water. So that's interesting. You've got to think about what that means. He intentionally led them to places where there wasn't any water. And we don't find out until Deuteronomy why God is doing this, but it's to teach them that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So a very interesting lesson, but they need to go to this class. And so part of the class means, hey, we're going to follow this pillar of fire, this pillar of sand, right to a spot where there isn't anything to drink. And now let's see how we handle this. Well, here's how they handled it. Numbers 21, verse 4. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. 
Why have you brought us out out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. You remember what that worthless food was called? Manna. Isn't that interesting? We loathe this worthless food, this provision of God in the middle of nowhere. We loathe this worthless food. I love it in Deuteronomy 8 where Moses reminds them that uh, God fed you manna, which you did not know and your fathers did not know, that you may learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, God's giving them something they don't want, which is manna. He also said he caused you to hunger. So, So God is not giving them what they want, and he is giving them what they don't want, and all of this so that they will learn. These complaints continue all the way through Exodus, Numbers chapter 11, and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. <laughs> right in the middle of the Exodus, here is God saving them and bringing them out of slavery into the promised land, and they're complaining about their misfortunes. The people were scared to enter the land. God brings them right up to the borders, sends out the, the 12 spies, and most of them came back and said, well, the people are really big in there. And, uh, and, they, de- and they decided that uh, they didn't want to go in. And so in Numbers chapter 14, Moses said, do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Yeah. And right at the highest levels of leadership, we see Moses suffering betrayal and rejection. Numbers chapter 12, I think it was one of the first two or three passages of the Bible that I ever taught. Um, This is Aaron and Miriam, who were the brother and sister of Moses. So the three of them were brothers and sisters Moses is the spokesman of God. Here he is interfacing with God. And uh, Aaron and Miriam got jealous of their brother. And in Numbers chapter 12, verse 1, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? It's the ultimate, it's not fair section of the Bible there. Well, God follows that up by defending Moses, but just let that sink in for a minute. Leadership can be very very isolating. Here's Moses. He's being criticized by all of these different people. He's being rejected by all these different people. Some points they want to stone him, and now here, even within his own family, uh, the highest levels of leadership, and they have rejecting him. So God goes on for a couple of paragraphs, rebuking Aaron and Miriam, and... Uh, And then in verse 9, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and God departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, oh, my Lord, do not punish us because uh, we have done foolishly and have sinned. I think those are some interesting words there. Do you notice um, Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, oh, my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. You can just see Miriam there going, who's this us? <laughs> Verse 12, let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. Yeesh. 
And Moses cried to the Lord, O God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, if her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be put outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be, she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. So do you see what's going on here? Aaron and Miriam rebelled against Moses. Therefore, they rebelled against God. Why didn't God punish Aaron also? Why is it that Miriam is the one that gets leprosy and has to publicly go outside the camp while Aaron is in there kicking back, eating baklava or whatever while they're waiting for her to be healed? Seems like kind of a patriarchal thing, right? The patriarchal chauvinistic Old Testament where the women have all the trouble and the men get treated with privilege. Tons of commentary has been written on this subject. I just think it's interesting that a story about questioning authority causes us to question authority. (laughs) Don't you think that's interesting? It's a perfect example of the emotion that we have toward leadership. When you read that and you feel that, but hang on, that's not fair. Why should he be the one to decide? Why didn't he do it different? And it's interesting to me also that God doesn't explain himself, which is why you have so many pages of commentaries that are written trying to get God off the hook. And I think God is just basically saying, here's what I'm doing, and that's the way that it is. I'm sure there was wisdom there. I'm sure we could parse it out if we knew what all the details were, but that's not the thing. God doesn't have to explain himself. So Moses experienced this huge amount of rejection from people, the very people that God sent him to serve. And David was no different. Remember King David, so we're fast-forwarding by hundreds of years here. Right from the very beginning of meeting David, he shows up in 1 Samuel chapter 17 to see this huge guy, Goliath. And nobody has the guts to go out and fight him. And in 1 Samuel chapter 17, Uh, Eliab's anger was kindled against David. Eliab was David's older brother. Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it but not a word? Right from the very beginning, we see David experiencing trouble. David's wife also rejected him and treated him poorly. Uh, you remember that scene in Second Samuel chapter six, where the uh, where the uh, Ark of the Covenant, uh, Ark of the Covenant, finally comes uh, to uh, Jerusalem, and here you have David. He's dancing and he's leaping around in front of the Lord. He's having his own little praise session, right? He's kind of thinking he's in his room all by himself and he's jumping around praising the Lord. But his wife uh, Michael sees what's going on and. Uh, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servant, his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. (laughs) And David says to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. 
And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. So David had trouble right in his own home. David's own son, one of the most heart-wrenching stories of the Bible, is when David's own son, Absalom, tried to take the throne from him, Second Samuel chapter 15. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And it turned into this horrible scenario where the country can't decide which one of them is king for a while. And David's closest counselor, this I think probably hit even closer to home because Absalom was a fool and probably not a lot of fun to hang out with anyway. And so this one hit him even closer when Ahitophel, uh, David's closest counselor, goes and takes the side of Absalom. In 2 Samuel chapter 15, and while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahitophel the Gilonite, David's counselor, from his city Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. In Psalm 41 and also Psalm 55, I think David is probably talking about Ahitophel or someone like him. Psalm 41, 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Enemies were a frequent topic for David. Psalm 55, a very important lament if you're ever in a leadership scenario where people reject you or rebel against you. Psalm 55 is a good one. Psalm 55, give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and moan because of the noise of the enemy. And in verse 12, he says, for it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolent with me, insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. So Moses and David were both surrounded by relational chaos. And I think all of this points to Jesus Christ. These are men who were rejected by the very people that they came to serve. And God ties themes together through Scripture, and this theme of rejection keeps showing up. And it points to Christ. After all, John chapter 1, verse 11, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. Jesus was rejected by the religious leaders of the day, the people who should have been most astute as they were looking for the Messiah, the people who should have said, Messiah is here, let's gather around. Matthew 27, 1, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. One from his inner circle also rejected him. His name was Judas, and we think, well, Judas was probably an ugly jerk, and so that was okay, but this was one of, one of his inner circle is one of the guys that used to hang out with Jesus. Matthew 26, 21, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And of course, quoting Psalm 41, Jesus says in John 13, the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. You remember even Peter was 
embarrassed to be associated with Jesus. It was dangerous and embarrassing. And in Mark 14, Peter said to him, even though they will all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. People in his hometown rejected Jesus, the people that he grew up with, the people that he liked and remembered as neighbors and so on. In Mark 6, they said, how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here among us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And of course, all of this was prophesied. It wasn't a surprise to Christ, which I don't know uh, means that it wasn't painful, but it wasn't a surprise. This was all prophesied, the famous one, Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Suffering surrounded the ministry of Jesus Christ. Suffering was integral to the definition of salvation. It was prophesied and suffering continued even after he ascended into heaven. The disciples, after they were beaten for preaching that Jesus was the Messiah in Acts chapter 5, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Those guys understood what it was all about. They traced that theme of suffering that the leader who brings salvation is rejected by the very people that he came to save. And these guys understood that this is the gig that we have signed up for. We have taken up our own crosses. We are following him as a disciple. Jesus suffered dishonor. Therefore, it is an honor to suffer dishonor. And that's a tough perspective to keep. But, uh, uh, I mean, even mature leaders forget that. But it's an important aspect of leadership. Matthew chapter 5, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So you see all of these connections that go all the way through scripture. We've looked at Moses, David, and Christ, and we've seen things that they have in common. All of them were involved in major salvation events. Moses led the Exodus. David is the iconic king and Messiah template, and Jesus is the Savior, Son of God. Each one of them was picked by God to lead. Each one of them treated badly by the very people that he was called to lead. And so, therefore, this is an important Bible theme wasn't just those three. Jeremiah is one of the most famous Bible prophets. In chapter 20, verse 10 of the book of Jeremiah, he says, For I hear many whispering, terror is on every side. Denounce him, let us denounce him. Say, all my close friends watching for my fall, perhaps he will be deceived. Then we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. Those were his close friends. (laughs) Joseph is also a huge Bible character related to the salvation of God's people. Genesis 37, his brothers hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. It's interesting that so many Bible leaders, especially the ones associated with major salvation events, suffered by the very people that they came to serve. They had more in common. Moses, David, and Jesus all wished that they could escape. 
During suffering, we think that the mature thing is to just calmly accept it, and if only we were more mature, then we could just take it. But, you know, Moses in Numbers 11, he says to God, Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. (laughs) David David said, fear, this is Psalm 55, fear and trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. Have you ever felt like that in the midst of relational chaos? Oh, that I had wings like a dove. (laughs) I would fly away and be at rest. And Jesus himself the ultimate definition of maturity. Matthew 26, 38, he said to the disciples, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. In Luke 22, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him and being in an agony. He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Those are descriptions of Jesus Christ in agony, needing an angel to come and strengthen him. During suffering, we think, if I were just more mature, then we could just be calm about it. But Moses and David and Jesus were not calm at all. Psalm 6, David says, I'm weary with my moaning. In other words, I'm sick of listening to myself moan. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Now look, leaders do need to get it together. And all three of these Bible characters did get it together. They didn't stay in their beds, sitting there crying. They had to get up. They had to be the leaders that God called them to be. But none of them were robots. None of them was just data on Star Trek that can take, a, take sort of a rebellion or something like this, and it doesn't really touch his emotions. They felt the suffering deeply, and they wished for escape. So if this is such an important theme in the Bible, if this is a major Bible theme... You would think it would be helpful for us if we were trained for it. Like a parenting class, right? Parents suffer. Psalm 55 is for parents. The two-year-old rebels against you over and over every three minutes all day long. Wouldn't it be nice if seminary actually prepared us to suffer? So much of... uh, like a parenting class or anything like that, or a leadership class is about how to avoid trouble and pain. And yeah, we don't want to shoot ourselves in the foot. We do need to be wise, and so we need to learn wisdom so that we don't shoot ourselves in the foot and suffer in that way. And yet, don't miss this. God leads us intentionally into suffering. God leads leaders and all disciples into suffering intentionally for a couple of purposes that he describes. First of all, so that we will learn to rely on him more fully. You remember what God said to Paul 
when he had the thorn in his side, my grace is sufficient for you. And also, God leads us into suffering intentionally so that leaders can act out the gospel. Repeating in the Old Testament, foreshadowing, and now reflecting back on exactly what Jesus did. Suffered at the hands of those he was sent to serve. And so you would think it would be helpful to us if we learned how to handle this rather than just how to avoid it. There is no way to avoid it. This is what it is. This is what salvation is. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to earth. What he means by that is later, when I come back the second time, then we're going to talk about peace. But here, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother. And a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So here we have the need to be trained to suffer. Not just training to avoid it, but I would argue that as new parents, as future elders, as current leaders, deacons, small group leaders, whatever it is that God has called you to lead, particularly in family and church. And I realize that there's leadership and interpersonal things that happen in the business world, too. I was a manager in a Fortune 500 company, and I know that there are relational problems that happen there as well. But in that environment, you're able to fire people when they become totally dysfunctional. And it is not my job as a manager in that environment to fix your marriage or to help you deal with major sin and major heart issues. But when we're talking about family and when we're talking about church family, we're dealing with much more difficult issues and we don't have the eject button when it's not working out because it's family. It's family. And we're going to continue living together. We're going to continue doing this together. And so there's a, there is a deep need within family and church family to be prepared for the kind of conflict that happens between human beings. And so I'd like to suggest three things that are important for the training. If you're not currently in the middle of leading annoying people, then you will be. Uh, Or you will be mentoring someone who will be. And so here are three tips. And when I'm 60, there'll be seven tips, but this is the best I can do right now. First of all, know that you are in good company. Know that you are in good company. Psalm 55, you know, you find that in the midst of when the, when the wheels have actually come off. You find Psalm 55 or Psalm 41 and you realize, whoa, David was here. David was here. You know, it's like you're in the bottom of a dungeon or the bottom of some scary basement. And you got your flashlight and you see on the wall, David was here. All right. All right. David was here. Maybe I can do this. You're in good company. You're in an honorable company of fellow sufferers. Now, if you've shot yourself in the foot, that's a different sermon. If you've done something stupid 
and you're suffering for it, that's a totally different sermon. <laughs> and, and leaders do that too, right? I mean, we do that all the time. But right now we're talking about you're doing the best you can, you're working as hard as you can, you're making the best decisions that you can, and people betray, rebel, complain. As parents, as elders, as any kind of family or church leader, we need to expect this kind of rejection and expect this kind of betrayal because this is what salvation is. You're a husband treated poorly by your wife, whatever it may be, that you are in good company. You've got some serious studs, some awesome Bible characters that are right there with you. They've been there. Bonhoeffer called this the must of suffering. There's a great, uh, many of you are reading the biography of Bonhoeffer right now by by Metaxas. Uh, Bonhoeffer said, just as Christ is Christ only in suffering and rejection, so also they are his disciples only in suffering and rejection. In being crucified along with Christ, later Bonhoeffer wrote, the disgrace of suffering is part of the cross. Being expelled, despised, and abandoned by people in one's suffering, as we find in the unending lament of the psalmist, is an essential feature of the suffering of the cross. An essential feature. An essential feature. And so know that you are in good company. See this in context. Do not be surprised by the fiery trials. I'm just, I'm just trying to be a good wife here. I'm just trying. Yeah, yeah, okay. Don't be surprised that it's hard. I'm just trying to be a father here. And my son is like, yes, that's part of what it is. To be a godly leader. So the second tip is to learn how to lament. Learn how to lament. All of the characters we've looked at here today, particularly Moses and David and Christ, all of them talked to God directly about their suffering. Talked to God about it, in, like thoroughly doing, like here's what I'm thinking, here's what I'm feeling. God, you know, right in God's presence talking about what they're thinking. Numbers chapter 11, Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? That sounds a lot like Job, doesn't it? Of course, Moses is wrong. He assumes since the people are just horrible to lead that God has turned against him. He says, why have you dealt ill with your servant? But of course he's wrong. God had a serious plan behind the suffering. I mentioned this earlier, Deuteronomy 8, 3. He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So when people are in that class, it's tough to be around them. It takes time to learn that lesson. But here's the question. If God is leading us, can, if God is really leading us, if we really believe in the sovereignty of our God, can we trust the path that he takes? And this is why lament is so important. Because when we find ourselves going right through the valley of the shadow of death and we're like, whoa, I thought there was a side road here. That road would be better. How about that one? But no, God leads you right through the valley of the shadow of death. <laughs> And so it's important to take this to God because he's the one in charge of this journey. So let's take the problem directly to God. Psalm 31, David says, I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side. 
as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, Yahweh. I say, you are my God. That's lament. That's lament. Even Jesus lamented. Matthew 27, 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting a lament psalm. We're tempted to complain to other people when we suffer, especially when relationships go bad. We're tempted to take the problem to others who will feel sorry for us. We're tempted to turn on leaders. We're tempted to turn on the people closest to us. But instead, we ought to learn to lament, to appeal with respect directly to God for rescue, for relief. To appeal with respect directly to God for rescue and relief. Third tip, as we train and prepare for this, as we prepare for reality of what relationships are, of what ministry is, of what mission is, what family is, the third is to remember the purpose of suffering. Remember the purpose of suffering. And there are, many, there, there are many different themes we could go to here in Scripture, but I want to focus on the most important one. Why did Jesus die? It was to forgive our sins and to reconcile us to God. Therefore, forgiveness and reconciliation are the goal of all Christian suffering. The goal is not to stop hurting. The goal is forgiveness and reconciliation. The goal is I forgive you, even though you don't deserve it. And we're reconciled from my side. We're like doctors trying to bring a cure to sick people, but we can't do the work without exposing ourselves to nasty infections. In fact, it is by the death of the ultimate physician that any of us can get well. So it is no surprise that when we, when we go about his work, that sin spills all over the disciples of Jesus. Sin that must be suffered and forgiven. And when people hurt us, our temptation is fight or flight. But God calls us to get a hold of ourselves through lament. 1 Peter 3.9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. That's a good one for the fridge, don't you think? Or the car dashboard or whatever it is. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Wonderful lesson to teach children, to teach anybody who lives in a house with others or goes to church with others or who lives in a neighborhood with people. I mean, it really would be easier to just move out to a shack somewhere. And yet God, God calls us to relationships. He, he calls us to relationships so that we will suffer and respond with forgiveness and reconciliation. It's huge. It's massively important because we think there's a problem here and it needs to be solved. You need to stop being so dysfunctional. So let's go to counseling so that you can be less dysfunctional. Consider... 
And there's some truth. There's some truth here, right? We don't need to shoot ourselves in the foot. We need to learn how to be wise. Don't be stupid in the way that we have arguments and all that other kind of stuff. So we need to learn basic wisdom. But consider that the conflict that you experience in a normal home is designed so that you can bring glory to God in the way that you suffer and forgive and be an agent of blessing and reconciliation in your family. It's an opportunity, which is why the New Testament says, consider it pure joy. (laughs) It's why those disciples, after being beaten, like still bloody and bruised, walk out rejoicing because they were considered worthy to suffer for the name. If you're in a tough marriage, if you've got a really, imp- a really difficult kid, you've actually got a bigger opportunity than the ordinary person to bring glory to God in that situation. What an honor you have. What an honor you have to more poignantly, more publicly show people what God has done for you in a real relationship. What an honor it is to have a dysfunctional relationship in your life. What an honor to have a jerk husband. What an honor. What an honor to display what it is to be like Jesus Christ in the midst of suffering. 1 Peter 2, 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his footsteps. So what does a Christian pastor say to people who are going to experience suffering? Okay, on the one hand, let's have some classes and some books and so on so that we don't suffer so much because so much of the way that we suffer is because we say and do dumb things. So let's not say and do dumb things. But let's also be prepared for the fact that the suffering is intentionally woven into it because that's what salvation is. And that's what we've been called to. We've been called to that mission, which is why we can consider it pure joy. Not just, okay, I suppose I can endure this until Jesus comes back, but it'd be better if I died. No, no. What did Jesus think of the cross? He despised its shame, despising its shame because of the joy set before him. Consider it pure joy. You know, leadership is a little bit like a romance. I really think that the most courageous thing that I've ever done is convinced Libby to marry me. And I've had these almost nightmare type things where I've gone back into the past and all of a sudden I've got all of my knowledge and everything that I have now, except I'm back in 1992 or 1991 and uh, Libby doesn't know who I am. And so the setup of this dream is that I have to try and win her again. I don't think I can do it again. There were so many different conversations and events and little things where so many times where it could have gone a different way. Uh, It was like tracking an animal through the woods for three weeks, you know. It's like... She doesn't remember meeting me. This was a one-way thing. She's not here today, so I can remember. So I don't really talk about her often because I have to pay her five bucks whenever I mention her from the pulpit. But she has the flu. She's probably not going to listen to this on a podcast. So I'm just. It was. It was. She was a hard one to win. 
uh, she was the most honorable and the most beautiful woman that I'd ever met. And so I decided, man, I'm going to have to put on my big boy pants here. We've got to make this happen. <laughs> and I think romance, I think uh, leadership can be a little bit like romance. The wooing, the pursuing, the convincing. Come on now. Consider it pure joy. Consider it like a romance. Suffering and rejection is part of what makes it happen, what makes it work. So we need to train for this. It's like a posture. It's like a posture. We need to learn how to have a certain kind of posture in the midst of the interpersonal rejection. First of all, we've got arms of solidarity knowing that we have this great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us and who will come after us who have suffered as a result of ministering to the people that they were sent to lead. And so we've got these arms of solidarity, uh, knowing that we're in good company. We also have this Godward lament, this uh, not just go to all my friends and talk about what an idiot you are and all this kind of stuff, but a Godward lament where I'm on my knees and I'm talking to God about how heartbroken I am and you have got to fix this because you are the Lord of all of this. Instead of complaining, Godward lament, and also this blessing of people. Instead of fighting, instead of running, you get real smacked and you think, you know what, it's time for us to move. And Jesus says, turn the other cheek. <laughs> Set yourself up again. Do it again. And I think this posture, the arms of solidarity, uh, arms of solidarity this Godward lament, And this serving others, I think this is good for parents, good for elders, good for all disciples who engage the Great Commission to lead people into the presence of God. If that's what you're all about, you're going to suffer. So let me just close with this, 1 Peter 4. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Let's close in prayer. Lord God in heaven, we know that we are often the ungrateful servant from the parables who is unbelievably outraged that somebody owes us five bucks and yet you have forgiven us millions. And Lord, I pray that you would flip that around so that we can really get who you are and what you have done, how much you love us and the joy it is and the honor it is to be your disciple. Help us to take up our cross Teach us to lament instead of complain. Teach us to deal with interpersonal conflict, not with therapy, but with grace. Teach us grace. And Lord, for the super daring among us, we say, do whatever you want with our lives. Whatever brings you glory, whatever brings you the most glory, do that. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.